Would you please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Ecclesiastes 4? Our text today is Ecclesiastes 4, verses 1 through 16. Please follow along as I read. Again, I saw all the oppressors that are all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought of the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is Havel, and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handful of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw Havel under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is Havel in an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fail or if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold, threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who had moved about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is Havel, and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Join me in prayer. Blessed Lord, you have caused uh, the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. And so we pray, grant us, great God, that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life you have given to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The title and theme for today's message is uh, Challenges to God Making Everything Beautiful in Its Time. Challenges to God uh, Making Everything Beautiful in Its Time. And by, when I say challenges, I mean from our perspective, obviously not from, from his. Last week, the preacher, who we think to be Solomon, said these wonderful words in chapter 3, verse 11. 
You can turn there. He, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And we said that it's better to live a life of trust in this God than to live a life of knowing why all things happen. That's good to say on Sunday when we're in the comfort of worship and one another. And then Monday came. And do you know what happened on Monday? Uh, Six individuals, presumably Christians, uh, were killed at a sister denomination in the PCA church, or school in Nashville, Tennessee. They were murdered in uh, cold blood by an evil and, dare I say, demonic individual. And we hear the news of those type of things and we think uh, God makes everything beautiful in its time. And I thought about that Monday evening and I thought, how do you square with what took place Monday and what we heard last Sunday? Are you tracking? I don't think I'm the only one that asks questions like that. There are dark hues on the tapestry of God's providence. And somehow, he has made everything. And I include things like that on Monday in the word everything. Beautiful in its time. Well, chapter 4 is all about that. It's about challenges that seem to not work with what you know to be biblical and theological. What you see and experience in life seem to contradict what we know to be true from his word. And the preacher says, here are four challenges I see that rub up against that truth that God makes everything beautiful in its time. And I'm so thankful for passages like this. So, the first challenge we see to this truth that we know to be true is oppression and evil. Oppression and evil, verse uh, 1 Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Note first, beloved, the variety of oppression. See the variety of it. He says, I saw 
all the oppressions. I don't think he sees every kind of or every instance. That would be impossible. What I think he's mentioning here is he sees the variety of them. He sees all kinds of oppression. He sees the extortions. He sees the lying. He sees the hunger, the hungry robbed of food. He sees the slave subjected to cruelty. He sees the preborn given to slaughter. And he sees the schoolchildren slain while learning. And he's bothered by it. I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun. This was not something he saw from afar, per se, but he knows it. Next, he says, look at the agony of the oppressed. Behold the tears of the oppressed. He puts you right in front of them. Look at their tears. There was no one to comfort them, he says. Twice. On the side of the oppressors, there was power and there was vengeance and there was no one to comfort them. The mighty had power. They had everything they wanted and they could have to inflict vengeance and oppression. But on the other side of the oppressed, they had tears and agony and they had no one to speak for them or comfort them. So he says in verse 2, his preliminary conclusion, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Better to be dead than alive, in this world at least. Gosh, you might as well be dead in light of all that's going on. In fact, verse 3, he gets even more real with us. This is why I love Ecclesiastes. He does not live in a fairy tale world and he does not give us theological platitudes he gets right in front of your face verse 3 but better than both so better than being dead or alive is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun better to have not been born at all in light of everything that transpires in this world The fortunate are those who have never been born. I thought of this verse when I heard that news on Monday. Sometimes I wish wish those students had never been born. There's a realism to Ecclesiastes, isn't there? Some see this as cynicism. This is the, this is the cynic speaking here. The good Solomon was in chapter 3, you know? God makes all things beautiful. Well, this is the cynic talking. I don't think so. If you stop and stare at the world long enough, this is what you sound like. Isn't it? This is life under the sun, life under the curse. Life and sin. And there is evil and there is oppression everywhere. And it's verses like these, beloved. It's verses like these that remind us that the Christian life is one of faith. Things don't make sense to the eye. 
that don't make sense. And so what you need to do, you need to once again, time and time again, come back to what you know to be true in the scriptures. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction, the persuasion of things not seen. I cannot see how this will be beautiful in my life, in this world, but it will. I cannot see how the devil has been chained, but Christ has bound him. Yes, I believe it. The Christian life is one of faith. I don't know if there's any better way to put it than the Heidelberg Catechism. It says, question 26, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Answer, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I so trust completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. That takes faith to write that, and it takes faith to believe it. Then it says he is able to do so as Almighty God, and he is willing also as a faithful father. I got a text from me and Clary right before I got up here. His aunt found his mom in the driveway trying to get to church. And she's hypothermic in the hospital. So Ian is at home with tears. This is not a game. This is life. A life you must live by faith. Well, um, there's another challenge to uh, God's good providence in this life. There's three more, actually. There is um, envy and laziness, verse 4 to 6. Envy and laziness. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is Havel and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. So you can make two errors when it comes to work. Envy or laziness. And the preacher says in verse 4, I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. So the reason there's so much productivity at work sometimes is because Sarah wants to be as good as Joe. 
That's it. Sarah doesn't have what Joe has. She's not able to produce what Joe produces at work. And so Sarah tries again and again and again to be like Joe. And envy drives her to work well. It's envy in her heart that wants to be like Joe. And so she gets to where Joe's at one day. Great. Envy got me to where I wanted to be at, she says. But then the, the preacher says, it's, it's Havel. It's striving after wind. Why? Because there's Jack down the hall, and he's better than both of you. It's Havel. Chasing productivity at work via envy is Havel. Well, let's just quit work then. No, that's not the right answer. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Verse 5, there's laziness. Well, I'll just play video games all day. I fold my hands, eat my own flesh. That, that's an idiom, eating my own flesh. Um, he's, he's cannibalizing on himself. He's, he's lost his hum humanity. When you don't work, you lose your humanness. You were made to work. And so you cannibalize yourself when you don't work. You're drain on society. Laziness, it's, it's a problem to, to God's providence, a challenge. So it's envy. So his preliminary conclusion, verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Better to, better to balance rest with work instead of being a workaholic. Better just to have a handful than, than two hands of always working, being always busy at work. Our problem is that we should we schedule our way to significance, uh, trying to be what only God is, significant. The call here for is to balance your life with rest and labor. The Bible gives us a doctrine of rest to remind us that we are but creatures. In Mark chapter 2, turn there. The Bible gives us a doctrine of rest to remind us that we are but creatures. We need this handful of quietness. There's a debate in Mark chapter 2 about Jesus eating and his disciples eating the bread of the priests. And the Pharisees are like, you can't eat that. That's only the priests can eat that. And he's like, the Sabbath was made for man. We can do works of necessity and charity on the Sabbath. He says in verse 27 of Mark chapter 2, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So you have been given a day at creation, God gave you a day. He made you a day for that handful of quietness, that rest. You have six to work, but you do not work on this day. This is the day of rest. This is the day of worship. Take it and be 
with him. He says in verse 28, not only has he given us a day, but he's given us a person. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So we've been given a day to rest and to worship, to not do any work. Put your work aside. Don't go to the office. Don't bring your work home. Put it aside. It's the Lord's day. But more than that, he's given you the Son of Man. Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. He's given you his Son to adore and to be with on this day and to be with his people, to worship him. Church is not about attendance, what you've come this week but not come last week. I don't know if I'll make it next week. No, church is about God and Christ and his people, to come and to rest with them, to come and to worship with them, to come and to adore Jesus with his people. He is Lord of the Sabbath. That's why we come here today. That's why we call you to worship every single Lord's Day. Behold your King Jesus. It's the Lord's Day. We need that handful of quietness each and every week. Isn't it funny? Isn't it interesting how the, the non-Christian even knows this? They talk to him and they say, I'm so busy, I'm so tired. It's probably because you work seven days a week. And you never rest. God has built into the fabric of our humanity as creatures to need rest. It's actually a great way to share the gospel. Did you rest this week? No, you're a workaholic. Let me tell you about Jesus and the Lord's day. I have an answer as to why you're so exhausted. <laughs> no amount of vacationing streaming entertainment, or social media escapism will give you true rest. There's a third challenge back in Ecclesiastes now. To God's providence. It's loneliness and isolation. Loneliness and isolation. Verse 7, again I saw Havel under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is Havel and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to whom is alone when he falls and has no one other to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep him warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who was alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The individual here is lonely, verse 7. He has no one to share life with, either son or brother, the text says, presumably a spouse, wife, or husband. So he spends all his time working, verse 8. There's no end to all his toil. He just works and works and works. He's lonely. He's isolated himself. He's never satisfied with what he makes, verse 8. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. His paycheck is never enough. His bank account always too low. He's never satisfied so that he never asks. <laughs> he never asks the big questions of life. Do you hear this? For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? What great questions. Why am I working? Why am I here 
rather than not hear. What does he say there? And why am I depriving myself of pleasure? Why am I just a workaholic? Why don't I enjoy life? He never asks those big questions. What am I doing at the office my whole life? He never asks those questions. He's a fool. That's a fool. He never asks those questions. Never asks those big life questions. So what's the remedy? Friendship. Friendship. And let me just take a couple minutes here to talk about three aspects of good friendship. First, a helping company. Verse 9 and 10. You need helping friends. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. The picture here is of two travelers. One falls into a pit. Can't get him, himself out alone, so he needs one, a friend, to lift him up. The Christian life, beloved, is a life of falling and failing. Did you know that? Welcome to the Christian life. It's a life of failing and falling. You need someone to lift you up. Paul never traveled alone, did he? He had Timothy. Before Timothy, he had Silas. Before Silas, he had Barnabas. And Luke seems to always be with Paul. Paul had good friends. My friends, a lone ranger is a dead ranger. You live this life alone, you will die. There was an account by a man Sitting in grief, he says, I was sitting in grief, torn by, torn by my agony. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. But another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. This man says, I was moved, I was comforted, and I hated to see him go. We need helping friends in this life. Uh, secondly, we need a warm company. Verse 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The picture here is of travelers on a cold night keeping each other warm. Probably of a man and a woman so those who are dating don't get any ideas. There's times in the Christian life when an unexplainable freeze occurs in the soul. 
No fervor, no zeal, no affection, no earnestness. And one of the gifts God gives to us to rekindle love for him is friendship. Warm company. Andrew Bernard uh, writes about uh, the impact of Robert Murray McShane he had on him. Bernard said of McShane, God's presence, he made God's presence more real and sin more foul. He was a warm friend to Andrew Bernard. Charles Bridges says, the live coal left alone will lose heat, but heap up other coals around it and you'll have warmth. Likewise, the communion of saints warms the Christian from the very center. You spread us out, we'll die. You gather us together, we'll live forever through anything. Because that's how we are. These are the kinds of friends we need today, beloved. John Calvin, I think I've remarked to you this before, but let me just tell you again, since we're late on time anyways. John Calvin, 1539 he gets in a bit of trouble with the magistrates at Geneva, so he goes to Strasbourg. And who's there? Martin Busser. Martin Busser is a friend of Calvin. He takes him in as a son of the faith. Calvin there writes the second edition to the Institutes. He writes a commentary on Romans. He pastors a church of 500 French refugees, and he is the biblical exegesis professor at the college. It's there in Strasbourg, people say, where Calvin learned how to pastor and to shepherd and to preach. We need warm friends in times of coldness. Third, we need a battling company. We need battling friends, verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who was alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Picture here is of two robbers who, will, who wish harm upon an individual. Two can withstand, he says, but three, oh men, they will prevail. The Christian life, beloved, is a life that demands a fight, a battle. God says in 1 Timothy 6, fight the good fight. Wage the good warfare. Put on that armor and fight in battle. Make it your aim not to fight alone, but lock Arms, lock souls with your brethren and fight together. Philippians 1, 27 to 28, you don't need to go there. Calls us to stand, to be resolute and unyielding in the faith. Then it unpacks how to stand, striving, he says, to contend. We are to strive. Imageries of a gladiatorial arena, we are to be united, unwavering for the faith. Not frightened, it says. So striving and not frightened, not being terrified, being unafraid for King Jesus. That's the type of friendship we need. A battling company. Those who stand. Those who strive. Those who are unafraid by the opposition. Do you remember that story of Elisha and his servant? Second, Second Kings chapter 6. King of Assyria is mounting assault against Israel. And they come against the city. I think it's Dothan at that point. And the servant turns to Elisha and says, they got a host of armies surrounding the city where we're at. We're going to die. 
And Elisha turns to his servant. Do you remember what he says? Don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he sees that the spiritual realm was pulled back just for a bit. And on the hillside and the mountainside are the host of heaven encircling the enemies of Israel. It's a wonderful picture of what the Christian life is like, of what Christian friendship can be, a battling company fighting together. You are not alone in your fight. Well, fourth, and lastly and, and quickly here, um, the fourth challenge to God's good providence is, is pride. Verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. I originally entitled this challenge politics, though that could be true, or bad leadership, that would also be true, seems to contradict God's providence. But that's not really the problem here, is it? Not necessarily politics, but those who no longer knew how to take advice, pride. It's the fool who stops listening. It's the fool who stops learning. It's the fool who was quick to speak. It's the fool who knows it all. It's the fool who is never wrong. This is a plague in and a disease and friendships and work and all the rest of life. But let me tell you something. I believe pride is a, a great disease in the Reformed churches today. I don't really know where the context. I know the context that I swim in, and that is the Reformed context. And what I see is much of pride, much arrogance. There are some Reformed people who simply cannot utter the words, I am wrong. We just are so bad at that. Can, can you help me understand something? We, we never sound like that. Reform people have it all right, all the time, about everything. It is a disease in the Reformed Church. Pride, arrogance, never taking advice. And I feel like sometimes you don't know what Reformed theology is then. I mean, we are the people who believe in total depravity. If you know total depravity, wouldn't you take advice from people? You would think. But we don't. Why? Because we are laced with pride. Laced with it. We're always right. We listen to no one. It's just us, our Westminster Confession, or our Second London Confession, and we never listen to anybody. 
Because we got it right. We're the big R. Listen, beloved. Listen. You and I are nothing. Nothing without humility. Nothing. We're fools. Proverbs 18.2. And I'm poking holes at our own camp because we need it. And it is the right system. Humbly I say that. <laughs> Proverbs 18.2 A fool takes no pleasure in understanding. <laughs> but only expressing his own opinion. That sounds like the reformed community. Let me tell you what I know. And what you don't know. Sit down a while. And let me become your teacher. Let me express my opinion to you and everything I've read. Proverbs 12, 15, last one. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to what? Advice. You want to be wise? You want to be truly reformed, historically and confessionally? I do. Listen to advice. Be slow to speak. James 3, wisdom from above. Wisdom from above is quick to listen and open to reason. Open to reason. Pride is a great threat to our life. So what do you do very quickly? What do you do? You have evil and oppression. You have envy and laziness. You have loneliness and isolation. And you have pride. What do you do? Well, all of these challenges threaten your life. Where do you go? Well, I say you must go. Uh, yes, the Sunday school answer, you must go to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he alone conquered evil and death, did he not? We're going to celebrate that next Sunday. 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He conquered evil. He conquered death. He conquered all the oppression. This life is Havel at short, including our suffering. And there is King Jesus, the only one who has mastered evil and death. I appeal to you, beloved, throw yourself upon him when you can't understand this life. Trust in him and rest in him. If you do not know him today as Savior, he is the only one worthy of admiration and worship. Everyone else is in the grave. He alone has risen. You throw yourself upon him today. Envy and lazy. Was Christ envy and lazy? Nope. He put his face towards the cross for you. He worked the hardest without being a workaholic. He obeyed the law perfectly for your justification without envy, and he was not lazy. He worked for you. Did he isolate himself? Nope. He had friends. Who are his, who are his friends? Look around. 
Greater love has no one than this, he says in John 15, that, that um, he lay down his life for his friends and he lay down his life for you. You have a friend in Jesus today. And was he filled with pride? Not the least. Not the least. Philippians 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's Jesus Christ who was the wise man of Ecclesiastes. You and I are not. We do our best to live, to live this life with wisdom. But we always look to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our great God, we pray that uh, Christ would be magnified. And when we can't understand life, when there are these challenges to life that come so frequently to our faces, let us trust and let us adore. And one day, those dark hues are so necessary upon the canvas of this world that it will all make sense. I don't know how. But you will make all things beautiful. You made the cross beautiful. The most wicked act in all of history. You had an ocean for Pharaoh. You had worms for Herod. You had a noose waiting for Judas. And you, had a, you have a hell waiting for all of them. And we trust in your justice and your judgment. Be glorified, O oh God. Amen.